passage. If you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our series, Anything Can Happen. Acts chapter 4. Just to bring you up to speed, if uh, you were away last week, um, Raw picked up on Luke, uh, sorry, Acts 3. And in Acts 3, we find the disciples are going to church, they're going to a prayer meeting, and on the way to church, they come across a lame man. He's been lame since birth. He's in his 40s. They've seen him every single day in their journey to the synagogue. And again, he's asking for money, and they say that iconic statement, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have, that which I have. And we felt like that's what God is speaking to us out of Acts 3, that which I have, I give to you. And they prayed for him. He gets radically healed. He's up on his feet, singing, dancing, walking and leaping and praising God, uh, just like Rory sang last week. And that gathers a crowd, not Rory singing, this guy leaping and <laughs> dancing. Oh, oh, hey, I, hey. Not, and I'm, Michael W. Smith. <laughs> Michael W. Smith for what? <laughs> so that gathers a crowd and Peter starts sharing the gospel and guys are getting saved. But what I want to look at in Acts 4 is the fact that that begins to rankle the powers that be. And what we feel is that we are crying out to God, Lord, what you've done in the book of Acts, would you do it again? But that also means that the opposition that rises up, we can expect to rise up again. And so I want to look this morning simply at what do we do when we are out in those dusty streets of Pretoria sharing what God is doing here and there's opposition. So let's take a look and see what, what it was that the disciples did in Acts chapter 4. Verse 1, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them. It was like you know, back in school when you thought your teacher wasn't coming and she suddenly walks in the classroom because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? And so Peter stands up and he boldly declares, he preaches the gospel to them, shares that this Jesus that you crucified is by his name that we have prayed this power of healing into this man even all the way down to like there's no other name by which man shall be saved but this Jesus that you crucified and then it says in verse 13 when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus so now you might look at this and go like okay but it's a little dislocated I mean this was AD 33 we're in 2023 how does this relate to us. I mean, we don't have a Sanhedrin. We don't have scribes and Pharisees. Why, why look at this and copy-paste into our day today? And what, what does this have to do with our Monday? Well, I actually want to show you that this has a lot to do with what Pretoria looks like right now. See, in the ancient Near East, at this time when Acts 4 happened, you had two powers. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. They were the two major religious sects. So the Pharisees, they were the, kind of like the religious police. It was all about profile and performance. They would follow you and they would make sure that you were tithing enough, that you were uh, washing your hands in the right way before you ate, that you were praying properly, that you weren't walking too far on a Sabbath. They were all about performance and profile. 
And maybe you know a little bit about that in the city. Maybe at uh, the last church that you were at, you came face to face with performance and profile. You know, the, you've got to try harder, do better. You're a disappointment. Or maybe you're the Pharisee. Yeah, I, I disappoint God. I, he, surely he doesn't love me. I haven't done enough. I'm trying to earn my salvation. Still alive and well in our city, these, these Pharisees. You'll, you'll know a Pharisee because they'll introduce themselves like I'm Apostle Eugene. Or Prophet Pete. You know, the business card. Singer Rory. Singer Rory, yes. Rabbi Rory. <laughs> Free circumcisions every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess with the guy with the microphone at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Fired on Monday. <laughs> yeah, Prophet Pete. I, I actually heard of a, a guy, who, a grandfather, who insists on his grandkids calling him pastor, so-and-so. Still alive and well in our city. Still alive. So that's the, the, the Pharisees. The, the Sadducees, they were a crazy bunch. I didn't know this, but they were like properly, properly secular, materialistic. They were more fashion informed by culture than, than thy kingdom come. So if the, if the Pharisees introduced themselves as Pastor Pete, the Sadducees would introduce themselves with their personal pronouns. They were the ones that were, instead of changing the culture for kingdom, they were being changed by the culture. And they were properly corrupt. The high priest and the positions, the roles and responsibility within the church, the, the temple, was actually given away to the highest bidder. They were in Rome's back pocket. It was crazy. Properly corrupt. Do you have any corruption in our city? Highest bidder under the table. And I love that one line. It says there, the high priest and his family came. I mean, we're talking mafia vibes here. Yeah. So you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, and together they make it the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had these two ultimate powers. They could excommunicate you or they could execute you. So if you were ex excommunicated from the tabernacle, from the community, the Jewish community, it was highly likely you had to sell yourself into slavery to get by because no one would buy or sell from you and trade with you and invite you into their home because you were excommunicated. And then, of course, worst comes to worst, they could ex execute you. Now, you look at that and go, like, well, we're not quite there, fortunately, in Pretoria, but I think we are. We, we've just sort of come with a lovely postmodern statement. We, we call it cancel culture. The Sanhedrin of our day is cancel culture. Now, if you don't know what cancel culture is, essentially it's this umbrella term used to describe what happens if you cross me. You, you say something that I'm unhappy with. You know, maybe you don't give a trigger warning before you say something. And then I finish you off. I get my keyboard cowboys together and my social media circles and we will ostracize you. We will shame you socially and within your professional circles. We'll end you. The, the Urban Dictionary says not only does it lead to disinvestment, the cancel culture, but widespread outrage, a mob mentality with the ultimate desire to dismantle the person's life. That's our modern-day Sanhedrin. I, I don't know if you heard a, a while back, there was a mom helping out at a play school, a preschool, tiny little kiddies, 
and they were having one of those uh, musical chairs. You know when the music plays, and as soon as it stops, everyone's got to sit, and there's one seat missing. So it was nearly Christmas, so she decided she was going to use Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as the song that she would play while they did their little musical chairs thing. And then the owner of the preschool comes storming in and says, no, 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 this song is banned from our play school. She's like, I mean, it's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Like, no, 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 you cannot play this here. And so they're like, seriously? So the owner says, you know, it, it encourages bullying. It doesn't affirm inclusivity and diversity. And this lady rolls her eyes, and so the boss whips out his cell phone, takes a photo, posts it on social media, and the newspaper said this, Thousand rally, thousands rallied against her, calling for the dismantling of her life for oppressing children by playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Wow. Sounds like our city, hey? Red-Nosed Reindeer? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have sunk to yeah. Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Why is it important that we get an understanding? Here's why. Because if you were here last week, you remember Rory came over here. And he said, when God is looking down, in Acts 3, he's looking down on the temple and all its majesty and beauty. You know, the crazy thing is raw. Uh, someone said to me that the, today's value, the temple in today's value would be 91 billion. And this is a 91 million building. And God looks at this and he says, listen, the church of Acts, my New Testament church, is not going to be bound by these walls. I want you to get onto the dusty streets of Jerusalem and reach the cripples. And if that is the case for 3CR, it means that those dusty streets of Pretoria will be filled with Pharisees, a culture curated by Sadducees and a people policed by the Sanhedrin. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we step into these dusty streets that we get opposition. The question is, what do we do? I can tell you what they didn't do. They didn't pray, oh Lord, pour out your fire on those filthy heathen. Didn't pray, pray judgment or, or Lord protect us. They didn't even, pr pr didn't even pray, trigger warning. They didn't pray, Lord, let our visa application for Australia come through. <laughs> Instead, verse 29, this is what they prayed. They got together. The glorified and honored God in verse 29 says, and they prayed, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Interesting, hey? While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, like, Lord, you continue to reach the city. Signs and wonders, do what you do. Anything can happen, but for us, we cry out, Lord, may we speak your word with boldness. Verse 31 when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. Did you feel it this morning? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. I love that. Boldness. Not, well, we need to cloister in the building, shut the doors, make sure the heathen don't find out we're here. They cried out for boldness. Mark Batterson, he's one guy that really knows what it means to need boldness to plant a church. He planted in Washington, D.C. And he, he tells a story of how he went to the Galapagos Islands and he was just overwhelmed by the wild-eyed wonder of creation. He, he talks about these, these penguins the size of pterodactyls and these giant iguana and swimming the, with the sea lions, which apparently is frowned upon, they could kill you. 
But he came home from that just amazed at God's creation and then took one of his kids to the zoo. And he was standing at this window. On the other side of the window was a 160 kilogram gorilla. And he said this. He said, I wondered at that point, if churches do to people what zoos do to animals. I wonder if we have unwittingly tamed people in the name of Christianity. I wonder if we've tried to remove the risk and mitigate the danger. And we think we are discipling people while all we are doing is domesticating them. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a dangerous plan. Hmm. When did we think we could become like Jesus without becoming, being betrayed by Judas, mocked by Pharisees, tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, or crucified by Roman soldiers? <laughs> when did we start believing that God only called us to safe places to do easy things with nice people? <laughs> When did we start believing that God only called us, 3CR, to safe places to do easy things with nice people? You see, I've been looking at Acts chapter 4 as a lens over 3CR and our calling, our place in the city, which is to be a base church. A base church is a place where people are shaped and formed and fashioned into Christ, but sent out, impacting our city, our economic climate in our country, going to other nations. And I've come to the conclusion that a base church has to be a bold church. If a base church is not a bold church, it becomes an old church. And then a cold church. And then a sold to the highest bidder church. If we are not a bold church, we will be a benign church fruitless, ineffective, and also and part of the old story of the city. So we were, I had the privilege of going to a place called Little Eden. I don't know if you know it. It's just outside Cullinan. Um, I'd been there once before about 20 years ago because it is one of the most beautiful places to jump. So you can jump from the waterfall on one side. It's, it's about 10 meters. On the other side, the sort of landscape climbs to about 18 meters. And so when my kids heard we were going to Little Eden, they were super excited because finally they got to see, they've heard the stories of us jumping from there as students and backward somersaults and everything. I did one backward somersault. I landed wrong. felt like the guy took a, a, a baseball bat on my buttocks. Couldn't sit the drive home. But my kids wanted to see, you know, where, where dad had done silly things. Don't tell my mom. <laughs> and so we get there and it's winter, you know. There's no plans to go anywhere near there, but they want to see. So we just, I decided, we're going to do a bit of a hike and we'll go past there. And they're like, no, 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 we want to jump. And I'm like, okay, the bluff is strong in these ones. You know? <laughs> so we go and we get there, and mom was sort of like, oh, you didn't jump, hey, babes? No. Yeah, she's not so, from the bluff. So she's down at the bottom. She's waiting for us at the bottom of the waterfall. I got my three kids, and slowly but surely, I managed to encourage them to jump. Not, not the high side. We were just on the, like, the eight or ten meter side. And then I'm, I'm about to jump. I think maybe I should do a somersault. Then I'm thinking, ooh, Kathy is going to do her nut. So I'm just going to jump. But I go to the edge, and I, and I stop. I'm like, I literally, I burst out laughing. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> it's like, you know, my spirit is going like, yeah, baby, bring it on. <laughs> my mind is going like, oh, come on. 
finally back again. My body is going fight or flight. What the heck are you doing to me? It's like, stop your Lucy. It's like, and I realized, you know, as we get older, it's in our human nature to become risk averse and we become safe and we put more money aside and we have broader margins. You know, it's one thing to, to feel a stirring to plant a church in your 20s, but in your 40s, like what? Remember what Rory said last week? This, this is not a sign of success. It's a warning of pending danger. And I think that the pending danger through the lens of Acts 4 is we lose our boldness. We shrink to the lowest common denominator. Tick, church attendance, and the city grows cold without us. See, we need to be a bold-based church. We need to be a bold community of believers. Because without it, we're no longer getting on our knees, crying out to God for our marriages. We just roll over and play dead. Well, you know, the statistics are, if you, we are not bold, we are not generous. We risk averse. Put more aside. We, you know, that's, oh, darn, I forgot my wallet. If we're not bold, we're not on our knees crying out to God for our government, that he roots out corruption, that he give us a political party with integrity and credibility. We're not crying out to God for light and dark places with state capture, that it gets finished once and for all. We quieten ourselves and we shrink back like little mice when God is calling us to roar over our city. You know, if we're not bold, we're not fighting for our children. You know, I heard this week, average stats... For eight to 12-year-old kids is five hours on their cell phone. Five hours a day. 13 to 17, eight hours a day. We need to be bold enough to wage war for our children's future. And I know you I don't want to be a helicopter parent. No, please don't be a helicopter parent. Be a fighter jet parent, a freaking Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor parent over your children because... For eight hours a day, your teenager has been indoctrinated with the ideologies of secular thinking. They have been washed by worldliness while you're sitting by, Dad. Going like, well, actually, it's nice that they're on their iPhone because now I can chat with my friends. I can have another beer. We need to be bold. While our children have been drowned by secular ideology. I love the fact that we have so many teachers and principals in this auditorium. And I charge you, do not become so domesticated, as Mark Batterson said, that you're no longer dealing with the dysfunction that's been vomited over our children at school. We need to rise up. We are called to boldness, bold financial decisions. Bold relational decisions, bold acts of faith, bold acts of obedience. Lest we lose the plot. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. It was like God saying, yes, that's what I want you to ask me for. The place was shaken and they all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. How? How do we tend to this boldness? See, because it can very quickly become arrogance. And this city has enough of that. Bible bashing, self-righteous, arrogant Christians. How do we curate a boldness within us without it becoming self-effort and performance? Well, we tend to another boldness. 
And this is what the Bible talks about when it says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Did you notice when we read, it said they, they, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized these guys have been with Jesus. One Bible translation says, and they came to the conclusion, that's what happens when you spend too much time with Jesus. <laughs> I love it. Like, oh my gosh, these Jesus people. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That is where the boldness to know who you are comes out simply as a love and a clear gospel call across our city. That boldness is an overflowing of an inward boldness. An insecurity and not knowing who you are in Christ simply overflows as arrogance. Which begs the question, what have you done with this call to come boldly to the throne of grace over the last few weeks? With Ray and Rob and Raw and Greg, we've had a month of hearing about the grace of God. If you've been away, I was looking at Psalm 139. This is David. He writes Psalm 139. And he says this. He says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Now, that's scary because this is, this is Skabenga, David, writing that. It's a beautiful Kozulu Natal word for what he's been up to. And I love it because I'm Skabenga Stephen. <laughs> See, David couldn't keep his hands off his friend's wife, had an affair, got her pregnant, and to try and hide it, he had his friend executed, murdered, plotted for the army to withdraw so that he would die and he, David Skabenga David could do what he wanted to do. And now he's in the presence of God and he said, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I stand and when I sit. You understand my thoughts, even from far off. It's like, I've got nothing. I, am, I can hide nothing from you. He said, you know all my ways. The Christian standard Bible says, you know all about my ways. Everything I do, everything I'm gonna do and everything I've done. You know, you know. Even before a word is on my tongue, he says, you know all about it. You're clean, he knows. And then it says, and yet, you have encircled me. You fix your hands upon me. And David is so blown away by this revelation. He says, this knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I cannot begin to understand this. That you would encircle me and fix your hand on Skabenga David, Skabenga Stephen. And you know this word, I think in the, the NIV it says something like, you, you hem me in, you've stitched me in before and behind. Some translations say you surround me. It's, it's a very tricky word to translate because it, actually the literal is, you east-west me, which doesn't make much sense in, in our English language. You encircle me, you east-west me. And I, the best way I can describe this, um, Peter Jackson, I don't know if you watched The Lord of the Rings, he steals this imagery. If you watch it again, if you have 92 hours to watch all three of them, you'll notice that whenever the hobbits or the dwarfs or the elves are, are heading to Mordor, the HQ of evil and wickedness and, and dysfunction personified, they're always walking from this side of the screen to that side of the screen, always walking from west to east. See, on the west side of your screen is home. Safety, sanctity on the east side is Mordor. 
And he gets it from the book of Genesis, where when Adam and Eve sinned, and they left Eden, they went with Eden to the west, and they headed east. And the Jews copied that with their tabernacle. Every time they built a temple, the Holy of Holies was on the west. And when you walked away from the presence of God, you are going east. And David says, you east-west me. What does he say? You encircle me. He's saying this. He says, as the throne of grace, when you got it together, when you're on your knees, when you're memorizing scripture, when you're up to date with your Bible reading plan and you're going to church and you're doing well and you're walking westward to the presence of God, the first thing you're going to come face to face with is the God of grace running after you. But he east-wests you, which means that if you are heading east and you've royally blown it and you haven't gotten it together and you're still on last year's Bible reading plan and you're skirting the friends that go to 3CR because if you come face to face with them, they're going to ask you what you've been up to and you're just going to cry. Your life is falling apart and you're busy getting a divorce and your children hate you. He said, if you are heading east, the first thing you're going to come face to face with is the presence of the God of grace. The one who's running after you. And so he invites us. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. You might be boldly running after sin. You're going to come face to face with the same God if you're boldly pressing into his presence. He's coming after you. And our invitation is simply to surrender to that. Because as we do, as we come boldly to the throne of grace, this boldness arises us, up in us and we walk the way we are called to walk as a base church with boldness in the city, in our business meetings, in our confrontation, in our travailing, in our plan, plotting and planning. And we become like Nico who I caught this morning and said, but you have more mountains to conquer. You have more land God was, wants to give you. There's boundary lines for you have fallen in pleasant places. We need to receive this boldness. It's only found in the presence of God. I had an encounter with, with the grace of God I don't think I've, I've ever had before. My son is in matric, and he got called into the principal's office with my wife and I. So we go on Wednesday morning into the principal's office, and he takes us into the boardroom. We're sitting down. I'm here. My son is next to me. My wife is there. And all his teachers that are teaching him this year on the other side of this table. And they start on this side, and they work this way around. And every single one of those teachers just poured courage and faith into my son's life, speaking the promises of God, what they see in him. We, we get to one of the, the men, and he's holding back tears. We're passing tissues. I, I mean, I've, I've made my teachers cry, but not like this. <laughs> but this man that my son absolutely loves it begins by saying I cannot believe I have the privilege of having you in my class this year I mean imagine a teenager hearing that from a man he respects he said I cannot believe I have the privilege of leaving some of my fingerprints on your future now to say that we floated out of there is an understatement that's what grace does it emboldens you and that grace is contagious. So I'm just as floaty as my boy. And I go from there into a, a meeting with a friend of mine. He's an international investment banker. He's here from Geneva, meeting with some big hitters in South Africa. He literally had just come out of a meeting with Tokyo Sekwale. 
And I sit down with him on the back of, of an, an encounter with some gracious teachers. And I say to him, oh, how did it go with Tokyo Sehwali? Are we, are we doing champagne? <laughs> and, he's, he said, and I could see in his eyes, these last few days, he'd just been beaten down and battered. You see, he's a South African. And so he's not only meeting with South Africans, but he's also got to balance the U.S. and, and the Russia issue with Ukraine. And he's got to go back to Geneva. And he says, it's like these tectonic plates are shifting under his feet. And I found myself for two hours just pouring courage into him until I saw something like a fire in his bones. It was incredible. He went from battered and bruised to a boldness for the meetings to come. And I'm just thinking, you know, you have influence on the economic climate in our country on big hitters, on international relations, and I have the privilege of just pouring the grace of God on you, His plans and purposes on you, fanning into flame this gift that's in Him because of a, a momentary encounter with the grace of God from some teachers a few hours before. If that can happen from an encounter with gracious teachers, how much more, say how much more, Rory, how much more, a morning-by-morning morning encounter with the gracious God of all creation. How much more? This God who doesn't disqualify you, who's not sitting there to, to, to pick on you and to isolate you, but He looks at you and He says, I've got this. Remember what Ray said? I've got this. He looks at you and says, I've got that economic situation you're facing. I've, I've got this marriage. I've got your children. I've got your future. I've got this. And he's also not trying to disqualify you the first time you get knocked down, remember? He counts 11, 12, 13. That's that God. And so, what did they do? They prayed, grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And came boldly to the throne of grace. And began to speak the word of God. not a complicated word it's a simple invitation if you want to listen to me maybe you'll listen to my heavenly father i don't know if you felt it last night or early hours of this morning 20 to 3 hey, have you seen the news articles uh, i'm not claiming that i ask god you know the signs and wonders to follow the preaching of the word but i'll take that I've been thinking the whole week, Lord, what would it have been like when that place shook with your pleasure because they were crying out to you for boldness? My invitation to you is let's find out what it will be like for this city to shake with God's pleasure because we come boldly to the throne of God and we take that into our streets. Thanks.